Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light of what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt. This episode is being brought to you by the Born to be a Badass Prep School, the premier self-protection course that teaches you everything you should have been taught about how to be safe in the world as you were growing up, but weren't. If you're like me, you were taught how to cross the street and how to swim, but probably heard very little, if anything at all, about the dangers you might encounter at work, in your relationships, or just out and about in the world. Maybe that's because your parents, like mine, didn't know what to teach you. Or maybe it was just assumed that bad things might happen to other people, but not to you. This is the program I wish had existed when my own daughters were growing up. Heck, it's what I needed to learn and never had a clue about in my younger days. The Prep School is an online program where you will change your mindset and learn how to make the most of your innate abilities to protect yourself. You'll learn what to look for and how to recognize potential dangers, what to do in bad situations, and how to manage fear. You'll discover how to tap into your body's natural protective skills if you have to fight, and how to deal with the aftermath of an incident. Not only is this a virtual program that you can do from anywhere at any time, you get lifetime access to the content, access to my private support group, and you get a gift certificate to use towards one of my live hands-on training events that builds upon the prep school curriculum. Get yourself over to www.cynthiajolicur.com slash prep school to learn more and to register for an upcoming session. As a listener to the Born to be a Badass podcast, you will save more than 60% on your enrollment by entering the code podcast when you register. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur, and today I have the great pleasure of bringing on the show one of my longtime friends, a woman that I got to know virtually before we ever actually met in person, and who has been part of a long-distance friendship for more than a decade. Her name is Aileen Ryan. Aileen grew up in Irvington, a suburb of Newark, New Jersey, in a three-bedroom household with 10 brothers and sisters. A straight-A student in high school, she lost her scholarship and flunked out of college with a stellar 1.7 GPA. Diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety, she overcame the despair of 10 years of chronic pain and illness, finally diagnosed as lupus and celiac disease divorce and single motherhood, as well as the tragedies of the deaths of her closest brother, father, mother, and most recently her eldest brother, who was her godfather. Aileen is also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, who later went through every survivor's and mother's worst nightmare, the sexual abuse of her daughter. She eventually returned to college and completed her degree from William Patterson University in exercise physiology with a concentration in cardiac rehab, this time with a GPA of 3.9. She's fluent in Spanish, conversational in French. She's a world traveler. She's lived in Switzerland, traveled all over Europe with her infant daughter, 
hiked the Inca Trail in Peru, and El Camino in Spain, both solo. Aileen is a heck of an athlete. She's run seven marathons and 15 half marathons. I don't know how many 15 half marathons adds up to in terms of full ones, but it's a lot. She's done seven triathlon competitions, countless shorter races. She's competed in powerlifting and Olympic lifting as a master's athlete. She's owned a CrossFit gym, been a yoga instructor, and a spin trainer. Professionally, she worked with high-risk hospital cardiac rehab patients. She was an office manager for a children's mental health and nonprofit facility and finance manager at an assisted living facility. Aileen is a serial entrepreneur. She's been a personal trainer, a life coach, and a CrossFit box owner. She's currently working again as a life coach with a wide variety of clients at her new business, Inward Ventures. And she's also the CEO of Fortius Weightlifting, one of Southern California's premier weightlifting gyms. So you can tell by that bio that Aileen is a badass, and that is why I asked her on the show. Welcome to the podcast, Aileen. Thank you so much for having me, Cynthia. I truly appreciate it. It's an honor. Thank you. Oh, likewise. It's it's something that I am just thrilled that we were able to work out the time for you to come on and for us to do an official conversation that we can record because there's so much to talk about. Yes. Well, to get started, I like to give people a quick little round of sort of lightning questions just to kind of warm up and get into the groove. So are you ready for that? Yes, ma'am. All right. What is the current book you are reading? The current book that I am reading is Anamkara, uh, a book of Celtic wisdom, which is by John O'Donohue. An unusual book. <laughs> uh, it certainly is. It's not the type of book that you can read uh, all at once, cover to cover. It's the kind of book that um, I just have on my bedstand, and I can pick it up weeks apart. I could just pick it up wherever, whenever, and read a few pages, maybe a chapter. It's very deep, and it's very thought-provoking. Uh, John O'Donohue is an amazing philosopher, and he's just, uh, he's very marvelous. So I do recommend that book, Anamkara. And what drew you to it? The death of my Anamkara, um, which Anamkara is Gaelic for soul friend. And my brother John was my soul friend. And his death uh, left such a, a gap, a hole in my life. And so reading this book has just been uh, uh, not just transformational with uh, dealing with grief and tragedy, but realizing that I have other Anamkaras, I have other uh, resources and connections, and that love is just so profound and, and so uh, pervasive, but we have to look for it in different areas, different avenues. Mm, that's beautiful. It's like a very powerful book, and I can understand why it's not something that you can read like all in one all in one whack. Yes, so definitely. It, it's not it's not a light, easy book to read. No, but. no, it's one of those that needs some digesting time. Yes. Okay. What is your favorite dessert? Oh boy, my favorite dessert. I would just say plain old chocolate. I, I love a good chocolate bar. Absolutely. Any old chocolate? 
Cadbury chocolate from Ireland. Uh, yeah. yeah, so not just like a, no offense, but you know, to my Hershey people, I love good Irish Cadbury chocolate. That's just from growing up, and that's what we had. Cadbury chocolates, so it's also a, a little sentimental. I can relate to that because one of my favorite things to have as a special treat are Jaffa cakes. And, you know, you get those in England, and that's what I grew up with, and there's yes, like yes. Yeah. If I, if I didn't have celiac disease, I would say Archway Dutch cocoa cookies because those were my favorite cookies growing up. Oh, wow. Never heard of them. Oh, they're uh, amazing. They're big, thick, soft, chewy cookies with um, granulated sugar on top. Oh, it's outstanding. Okay, we should move on because I'm going to start to okay. rule. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's your number one self-care practice? Oh, I don't even have to think about this. Meditation. My meditation. I have been meditating for... She's over 20 years now, and I don't even consider it a practice. It's just part of who I am, and uh, it is absolutely how I stay <laughs> sane and keep myself grounded. Uh, multiple times a day, I find myself um, reaching for it because it's just, uh, it, it's just so useful. Well, how does that work like multiple times a day? Because when I think of meditation practice, and honestly, one of the things that has always put me off was like having to carve out time in the morning or in the evening before I go to bed or something like that. And I just oh, I can't carve out a whole bunch of time. So how do you incorporate that like on the fly? Um, because I think of meditation, I just connect it with my breath. So it would be, or, or like eating or like having water. So, well, how do you carve out time to eat or drink or whatever? Like, oh, I just do it. It's like breathing. So if I'm washing dishes, and yes, I wash dishes by hand. I actually really enjoy that. I don't even know how to use a dishwasher. I don't know how to load it. I don't <laughs> know, like, what is this? I like washing dishes. So... While I'm washing dishes by hand, if I find I'm, you know, I don't know, ruminating about something, I can stop the rumination and the worry and just feel the water. Like, oh, this is so wet. Or feel the smell, the um, dish detergent. Or look at just the way the bubbles are running off of the glass that I'm rinsing and place it on the drying rack and just be very aware in the present moment. So I've stopped thinking about whatever worry I've gotten off the worry train, as I call it. And I'm just there washing dishes. I'm not thinking or doing anything else, but being immersed in wet hands then a dry hand and then placing the glass and then being aware of I'm here. Look at this. I am so wealthy. I'm so fortunate to, I have glasses that I can choose. I could pick one of 10. I could throw this on the ground and break it. And I have nine more. I have so much abundance. I'm so fortunate that I'm able to work from home so I could do dishes during the day. I am so fortunate that 
like it's just this constant gratitude practice. And so to me, that's I meditate all day long. But of course, I'm human. So I worry about whatever or I get pissed off or annoyed. And then I can also say, okay, time to dial it back. And close my eyes and take a deep breath four or five times and just reset. So meditation for me isn't 20 minutes of silence and oh, it's a constant uh, course correction throughout the day of just a few breaths. And sometimes those few breaths are purposeful, sitting in silence, and I am saying oh, but most of the time it's just stopping, exhaling, inhale. Yes, it's very profound. It's very accessible. I I love that. Like that kind of meditating, I could do. I Absolutely. I'm, and I'm, Yeah, that feels sure really good. Do it already, I'm sure, but you just haven't put that name on it. I, I'm certain most people meditate and they, they're not even aware of it. Yeah, as, as I was listening to you, I was just thinking, oh my gosh, like that's what I experience every day when I go over to the barn. You know, I have a, a like a one minute walk over to my horse barn and I go over first thing in the morning and spend a good amount of time taking care of the barn cats and taking care of the horses, turning my little minis out and cleaning the stalls. And it is exactly that. It, it really is like a morning meditation because I'm not really paying attention to anything else other than just being there and also doing that gratitude practice that you just spoke about so eloquently. You know, I, I may not be quite as explicit about it, but I just am always filled with gratitude that I have the opportunity to have a barn and have horses and, you know, have my little minis and that I get to spend time in my day every day out in nature and with animals. And that's actually how I start my day. So, you know, I was just thinking, holy cow, like, that's meditating? I love it. Yes, absolutely. That's, um, that's flow state. And, you know, when you're so immersed in gratitude, you're so immersed in your passion, you're so immersed in joy and what moves you. Sometimes you're so immersed, it doesn't have to be joy. It can be that you're immersed in pain, but that you, you know that you are you can acknowledge it like, wow, I am profoundly, I'm so upset. I'm in so much distress right now. And that you can feel it and you can hold it because you know it's this fleeting thing and I'm just going to hold on to it. I'm just going to ride this wave and just be here now. And then it goes away. It's like a cloud in the sky, like all things, good or bad. They're like clouds in the sky. You look at this cloud, you're like, wow, that's an elephant. And then 15 seconds later, that doesn't really look like an elephant anymore. Yeah. And I don't know what that, I don't know what that looks like. So these things just come and go. And so if we can pause and take these little mental snapshots and just kind of acknowledge like, hmm, yeah, okay, this is where I am. This is what I'm doing. And it could be as mundane as just washing the dishes, observing, or it can be joyful, like, I'm so blessed. I get to be here with all these minis and I'm here in my little oasis, my sanctuary. Or it could be in the despair of at my brother's bedside while he's dying. And, and, but to be aware of that, like, my brother is dying. So I'm going to remember the way his hand feels in my hand. Mm -hmm. So that's meditation. 
too. That's just being so present and just being aware of these snapshots. So it's not all like sunshine and roses. It's pain and pleasure. But it's just that awareness that we bring to it. Yeah, I love Boy, this that. Got, this got real deep real fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that, though. I mean, that's that's actually a major reframe for me. Just I, I have an aversion to the word meditation, and, and I think yeah. I have some judgment about myself that I am mm-hmm. not a meditator and I don't like meditating. So Yeah, but it's like, it's like woo-woo and <laughs> inaccessible. Yeah. Well, it's oh, something yeah. that I've always felt like a failure at because I just absolutely cannot sit still, number one, mm-hmm. um, and to sit still and try to have a quiet mind just that's Mm -hmm. just never never worked and so i mean that's a great that's a great gift you just gave me (laughs) i love it all right well i have one more question here and then we're we're gonna dig into your path okay sure so the last question in this little lightning round which is turned into more like a thunder round is what advice would you give to younger women in their early 20s or what would you wish that somebody had given you as advice when you were a youngin? Oh, geez. Well, this is pretty easy because my daughter is 22. And the lesson that I really want to impart to her is, oh, sweetie. And, and to myself, to my younger self, like, oh, sweetie, you have the world ahead of you. You can afford to make so many mistakes. So go out there and make mistakes because you learn from them. I, I was so afraid when I was in my early 20s. And um, boy, I, there's just, you have to go out there and make mistakes, not be afraid to try different things because that's how you find out what you don't like and how you find out what you're not good at. And Ah, there's, you know, really only one way to live life, and it's to live. And you have to get out there and be vulnerable and expose yourself. Mm, That's powerful. I think I could have done with hearing that also when I was in my late teens, early 20s. So thank you. That's, That's a great insight. Let's dive into Aileen's path through life, all right? Sure. So let's start with your growing up, your family and your childhood. Sounds like not a common environment to be in a three-bedroom household with ten brothers and sisters. Yes. Three bedrooms, one and a half baths. So uh, the bathroom scenario really taught me about being efficient and getting stuff done (laughs) (laughs) and... um, you know, because there was always a line and knocking at the door. So it uh, it was actually very formative in that I was exposed to so much. Uh, now we would politely call diversity. But uh, I lived in a economically depressed area. And um, we lived there purposely because my parents had so many children. And it was really the only place that they could afford to live. And we lived in basically a really terrible neighborhood. And I saw a lot of things <laughs> that it's so funny. I I just assumed that um, everyone grew up the way I did. Everyone grew up in a really diverse neighborhood with, you know, lots of black and Hispanic friends and Asian friends. And um, I was the only white kid in my class and didn't 
everybody grow up like that? And didn't everybody uh, have neighborhoods where there was, you know, lots of danger and the police wouldn't come to the neighborhood if you had to go to the hospital, you'd call a taxi. Like, everybody does that, right? Yeah, so that's how if, you know, one of us, you know, my sister stepped on a nail one time. Yeah, my mom called a taxi. We went to Urban Regional Hospital because you're not going to call an ambulance. An ambulance is going to come to the area. And my mother didn't drive at that time. So, yeah, and I witnessed, uh, well, I don't know, dog fights and all kinds of uh, beatings and kids getting jumped. And while I knew that that wasn't necessarily right, I still thought it was normal to Mm -hmm. see that. On the other hand, I didn't know anyone who was Jewish. I thought everyone was Christian, maybe not Catholic like I was, but you know, I had lots of born-again friends. And so I, I just had this very, really weird upbringing with all this chaos in my immediate living situation. So it's a very small house with lots of people and a lot of chaos and drama there. And then in a chaotic city where um, I had to be very aware from a young age of things like where I could and couldn't ride my bicycle, where I couldn't, could and couldn't travel by foot, that it would be better if I were on a bicycle. Neighborhoods where I absolutely should not go. Places where I could go, but I'd have to have a sibling with me. I couldn't go alone. Like all kinds of things that I don't really remember ever learning that someone sat me down and said, this is how you behave. This is how you act. But it just was somehow learned. And I just thought everyone grew up like this. Like, oh yeah, everybody grows up in the city and knows how to take a bus and knows how to stare somebody in the eye and give them, you know, like a a dirty look. Like, I see you watching me and I'm watching you right back. And I realized, no, actually, that's not the way most people grow up. Not at all. That's not how this works. Yeah, that sounds like an extraordinary environment to be immersed in. And, you know, one where it's kind of like the the frog in the in the pot of boiling water. Like you don't really even know yes. how bizarre that is until you're out of it. You know? I didn't know that. I didn't know that other white people didn't see what's now called white privilege. I didn't even know that I was privileged. I only knew that um, if I was driving in a car with my friends. That if I was there, because I was white, I would be the one that would talk to a police officer because we won't get pulled over because there's a white person in the car. And um, if I was there, it lent credence to the group. Like, it, it was okay. I knew that racial profiling existed. I didn't know that that's what it was called. But I knew that my black friends basically just had a hard time that I didn't have. But I didn't know that that was privilege or like, it's just like, oh, but that's, yeah, like cops give my black friends a hard time and not me. And I just, that's the way it was. And it wasn't even that that was wrong. It was just, this is how it is. This is my experience. And, you know, my naivete has actually served me very well sometimes because I helped me with not knowing that I couldn't do things. And it's also uh, helped me in those situations because I've 
learns to be very compassionate and to be very understanding that, yes, I have seen that. Yes, I have known for quite some time that profiling is a, exists and that I do have privilege because I've never had to worry about some of the things that my friends had to worry about. And I knew that it was because I was white. It was nothing else, but it was because I was white that I was somehow more responsible. I was somehow smarter. I somehow gave credibility to our group just because I was white. And that was a, a profound insight when I realized, wow, there's not many people <laughs> who have had this experience. Like most people think that it's like a, a drama thing in the black community. And I was been able to say like, oh, no, I saw it from when I was a child. Absolutely. When I say these people, I don't mean to, to downgrade that, but just that, yes, the, my black friends, their families had to go through things that not even an issue for me. Mm -hmm. And I was aware of that. So, What kind of school did you go to? I went to a private Catholic school in Irvington for grammar school. And then I went to an all-girls Catholic school in a, uh, a middle-class community. Uh, in high school. And that's when I realized when I was with girls who were upper middle class, that's when I realized, oh, wow, I live in a poor, crappy neighborhood. I don't have nice things. I don't have wealthy parents. I don't have all this stuff. <laughs> um, these people live differently than me. And it was very eye-opening to see where I had come from. Right. Well, I was asked uh, multiple times in my first week of school, why did I talk black? Oh, you talked black? Huh. Yeah, I talked black. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, what do you mean talk? If anything, I thought I talked Puerto Rican. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean talk black? I don't even know if, probably if I got in touch with some of my old grammar school friends, whom I'm still in touch with through the magic of Facebook, I'm sure if I sat down with them and we started talking, the the stuff would just come rolling out of me. But um, yeah, I definitely had an accent. I had a, a vernacular that we just used in Irvington, and it was just um, talked black, but I was a white girl, so... Yeah, it was kind of disconcerting to me. And I actually made the effort to change the way that I spoke because I went to school with a bunch of mostly wealthy white girls who talked like valley girls. And I didn't talk like that at all. Yeah, big culture shift. Mm-hmm. So one of the other things that you mentioned in passing that I kind of went, oh, wait, what? <laughs> I want to hear more about this, was you mentioned dog fighting. You're not talking about just like street dogs getting in fights, are you? Uh, no, uh, this was formal dog fighting with bedding. And, um, it was, I knew that it was wrong, but I was sort of fascinated by it because I saw that people were cheering. I saw that, uh, like it was, it wasn't just, you know, two random dogs fighting in an alley. It was actually like the kind of stuff that Michael Vick got in trouble for like formal dog fighting where they're starving the dogs and forcing them to fight and there's money being bet 
And I saw that I recall at least three of these fights, you know, through a fence on three separate occasions. And I was just, uh, I was horrified, but I, and to see not just horrified, not just by these poor animals trying to destroy each other, but the noise, hearing and seeing people yelling and, and cheering them on and and just like that was just so mind-blowing because I knew okay this situation is not right this is not cool this is bad wrong horrible but they're enjoying it like it was such cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that phrase was but I was just like oh my god this is so weird and I also knew or I felt that I couldn't tell anyone. I felt like I was seeing something that shouldn't be seen. I shouldn't have been there. And I felt like a fly on the wall. And like I need to very quietly, very stealthily walk backwards out of the situation and not be seen and not say anything about it. And it was definitely a holy crap, what did I just witness moment. I think if I had witnessed something like that growing up, I would have been horribly dramatized. Yes, I was. I was really not so much traumatized, but it's like I was able to learn there are things that happen that you don't understand and don't make sense. But just because you're seeing them and, and you're seeing people cheer this on, you know, it, it almost seemed positive or, or, or fun. It was not positive. It was accepted. Right. It feels bad inside. Listen to that. That feeling bad inside, that means that it's wrong. Uh, or seeing a kid getting jumped and seeing him getting beaten with a baseball bat and the other kids are egging him on, egging, egging, and, and everyone is rallying up in this, like, mob mentality. And I'm like, oh, my God, no, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. Run away. Get out of here. Like, this is, and everyone else is, is like, yeah, 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 fight, fight. And just thinking, wrong, wrong, alert, <laughs> retreat. Like, this is not cool. Mm-hmm. This is not accept. Do not accept. Get away. And so just because those are my immediate surroundings doesn't mean I have to be a part of that. That's, that's okay. Right. And, and in both of those situations, then there's absolutely nothing that you could have done to have changed what was going on. No, because I, I mean, I could have told my mother maybe about the dog fighting, but what could she have done about that? And maybe I could have told a teacher about the fighting, but then, it wasn't happening on school grounds. It would have happened anyway. It was just like it was part of the culture. So I, I felt the best thing that I could do was just not participate and not approve of it. Like, okay, I'm retreating. I'm getting out of here. I'm not participating in this. How do you What's think up? that those experiences of seeing, you know, violence being committed and not being able to do anything to stop it, but also just recognizing, A, that something horrible was happening, and B, that the bystanders were not only not interfering, like they were participating and positive and encouraging, 
How do you think that has influenced how you move through the world, you know, as, as you have grown up and moved on? Because, I mean, you went to college, you've traveled all over the place, lived in different places in the U.S. and raised a child. How do you think that experience of being exposed to that kind of violence affected you? Well, I think that it made me realize that Can I curse? (laughs) Yes, you can. We have an explicit rating. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Shit happens. And some of that shit is painful in terms of it's depressing or sad and that kind of stuff, or it's uh, illness, it's death, it's violence. You know, shit happens in life. And knowing that that stuff not just can happen, but will at some point and in some form it it will happen in all of our lives it doesn't mean that it's right and as a matter of fact i love this because um in your newsletter which i was just reading earlier about acceptance does not mean approval that was so profound and i thought wow that is just like like one of my personal philosophies with uh with personal responsibility and taking responsibility for things those experiences, I do feel or felt a little guilty that I didn't do anything in some of these situations that I merely observed and, you know, well, I did something which was retreat. <laughs> I didn't do anything about it. And so I can see that now I would do something about it and try to interfere or in, in some way, acting forward towards stopping it. But I learned that, yeah, so these, these things happen. It doesn't mean that they're right, and I'm not approving of them. But these things happen, and so I need to be aware. And I need to know that there are certain neighborhoods that I can't walk through or that I can walk through, but I have to carry myself in certain or that these things happen, and so how can I be prepared? But not in a fearful way, not like, okay, so I'm never going to go out, or I'm never going to, no, it's, I'm going to live my life, but how am I going to live my life? With just this awareness in the background that shit happens, and some of the shit could be bad, really bad. So... What do you do about that? And the answer for me was always just to be aware. It wasn't to stop living or to hide and to shrink. It was just, okay, so this stuff could happen. Yeah, I think what it's making me think about is how sheltered my childhood was. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a clue that there was violence in the world. There was nothing in my entire childhood that had anything to do with that. So, you know, nothing involving animals, nothing involving people. I never saw kids fighting. You know, I just was oblivious to it all. And so when I encountered it in my 20s, I was completely taken by surprise. I had no clue. And Mm -hmm. I think for you, because you grew up, you know, you, you didn't have that ignorance 
you know, you, you started off with the understanding that the world can be a very dangerous place and you got to navigate through it. And there are certain things you can do to keep yourself safe. And you know, when you're in a position to do something, you can actually intervene to help somebody else be safe. But you never had to go through the denial of, oh, no, no, the world's fine. You know, there's nothing bad exists out there, which I think a lot of women do. I know I certainly I was so clueless that when danger did present itself to me, I just cooperated and hoped that nothing super bad was going to happen. And I think a lot of women do that because you know, don't grow up with actual lived experience, seeing and hearing and witnessing any form of violence at all. So in a way it was a gift, you know, that you mm-hmm. didn't have to go through that mindset change because you just started off with that awareness and that mm-hmm. knowledge. And the fact that you learned all of the rules, unwritten, unspoken rules about behavior, about, you know, where you could and couldn't go and under what circumstances, you know, that's, that's typical. I mean, we all learn that kind of thing. And in my prep school, one of the things we talk about is places to avoid. This was something that I learned through working with Rory Miller. You know, in hindsight, it was so blindingly obvious, but it was like one of the major places to avoid is going somewhere where you don't know what the rules are. And, you know, you grew up absorbing all of that stuff, even though it wasn't explicit. You know what? I'm just remembering. I, I don't know why I'm remembering this. My older sister, Teresa, was mugged. And she ran after the guy who took her pocketbook. I, I, like, it, it's so funny because I know her and her personality. I remember when it happened and she was so... She's, you know, wild-mannered accountant. She's, you know, she's, uh, like, very calm and, you know, not the fiery redhead like me, except she is in someone's <laughs> pocketbook. And she took off like a bat out of hell after this kid, and she didn't catch him. But the fact that someone stole her bag and she didn't say, hey, or, like, somebody call the police, she was like, hey, asshole, and started running after him. To me, so, you know, when everything transpires and she ended up, you know, having to call the cops because uh, she couldn't get the bag back or someone witnessed it and called. Um, So I'm hearing this at home later on that day, and it was like, oh, okay, yeah, so that's what you do when someone tries to mug you. You say, "Uh uh-uh, asshole, (laughs) and you go after them. The wisdom in that nowadays, uh, I, I don't know if that's responsible or irresponsible, but the, the fact is that I learned that you don't take that. Like, that's that's a victim mentality, that we're not victims, and you take my bag, well, I'm coming after you. That just seems so different from the, the message that most women are given, which is just give it up. They want your bag, you know, just back away slowly, give your bag to them, do whatever they want, acquiesce, give, give, give. And no, like you're not taking this. Right. So that, she she tapped into that sense of indignation, you know, that hell no, not today. Yes. Um, and it's a flip of the coin. It depends on the scenario. You never know whether uh, mm-hmm. that's the better choice or the letting it go is the better choice. It really, you know, it depends. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, good for her. And, you know, I can see how that 
modeling of indignation and, you know, not being a passive person who just lets something happen to you really kicked in and, and was a lesson for you from her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, I want to move along. I want to find out a little bit more about your educational path. You were in college with a scholarship and you managed to flunk out with a 1.7 GPA. What what happened? <laughs> My poor parents. Um, yes, I had a scholarship to a private university, to Seton Hall University. And uh, my parents were extremely strict. And I went to a Catholic high school that was very strict and had all these rules. And all of a sudden, I'm thrown into college where I have basically not many rules and no boundaries. And what? It's optional to go to class? And what? It, this is, you know, I'd never even had study hall. Like, I was on this really aggressive college prep track in high school. Straight A student because that is what was expected of me. And so I just, of course, did that because it was what I was told to do. And uh, all of a sudden, having these options and having choices, well, we're going to definitely choose the easy and fun route. And so I... Just started drinking and going to frat parties and basically having fun, basically being a teenager. And, uh, but it was at the expense of my college education because I hadn't learned any kind of balance whatsoever. So I was just indulging. And, um, I met my college sweetheart who I would end up marrying and uh, having a child with. And, um, I just was interested really in having fun because I felt like I hadn't had fun because I didn't. I hadn't had a fun uh, high school experience. Um, it was all just studying and like the grind, all that, you know, achievement. And so with him, it was fun and it was life. And I just chose that over school. Well, I don't think you were the first to do that. <laughs> no nor the last. So so what did you do when you when you flunked out? I moved out of my uh, parents' home and I got a crummy little uh, apartment with some friends and I remember my rent was $250 a month and I got a job as a bank teller and I was just, this wasn't a phrase at the time, but I was just living my best life. I was just uh, going out, uh, living on the brink of poverty, but having a blast going to a lot of live shows in New York City and all over northern New Jersey and just having fun. And I was working and I had my own car. I was 18 years old and I just felt so empowered and on top of the world. So I'm not embarrassed by that part of my story. I was at one point. Like, who feels out of college and she's with a 1.7 and I lost a scholarship and I was so embarrassed. But now it's like, yeah, but at the same time, I was on my own at 18. Who does that nowadays anymore? I had a car. I had a job. I got my passport, not because I knew I was going to go anywhere, but because I wanted to go somewhere. And I knew that you need a passport to travel the country. So I got a passport and I was just, I was ready. 
I just and I was living. It was it was a uh, it was pretty cool. It was a great period in my life. And how long did that last? Not very well. I got married when I was twenty three, which is very young. But I I started traveling before that. Let's see, I started traveling, I guess, when I was about twenty, and I started with trips to Europe with my boyfriend Steve that I would end up marrying. And um, I I just loved it. I loved that feeling of just being empowered and being on my own. And already by that time, I had chilled out on the drinking and stuff like that. And because of where I grew up, I never uh, ventured into drugs. I was able to see very closely how um, they are just bad news. And also that I knew with the kind of personality that I have, that if I tried something like cocaine, forget about it, I'd be, I don't know that I'd be alive. Like I, I would probably have become addicted to it and very quickly. So I just knew, okay, I had seen it up close and saw its effects and they saw crack and heroin and, and all kinds of terrible things. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm not going there. Alcohol, that's okay. And it's not okay, but that's the way that it was viewed. Alcohol's okay. Drugs, no. That's just a hard no. That is, we're not going down that route. Whether it's pills or needles or lines, not happening. So I had chilled out on the drinking by the time I got married. And um, yeah, I was convinced in my mind that I was really ready to settle down and have a family. And I was 23. What did I know? But yeah, that's what I thought. So when did you have your daughter? I had my daughter when I was 24. And at that point, um, we had done so many trips to Switzerland. And we had uh, gotten married and his company uh, offered us the chance to live in Switzerland. And that was a no-brainer. That was like, okay, yeah, we, we're going to do this. So my daughter Nina was born in Switzerland. And this whole time, my husband was just working all throughout Europe and a little bit uh, in the Middle East, in Israel specifically, and uh, and then also coming back to the U.S. for trips. And so he was traveling quite a bit, which was why they thought, well, we'll move to Switzerland and you'll at least have a, a central location. But then while we were there, he was still traveling all over the place. And so my naivete, which, you know, proved to be so helpful, was, well, I'll just go with him. Yeah, with an infant. That's okay. That's right. That was, like, what's hard about that? And um, I just didn't know that it would be difficult. And so it wasn't difficult. It really wasn't. It wasn't hard to make friends. It wasn't hard to physically, you know, do the logistics of traveling with this uh, small child and then toddler. I just packed up her diaper bag and brought her car seat and a stroller. And that was it toys. Well, we could get toys wherever we are, and we could always find a library. Libraries have toys, and libraries have playgroups, and we could always just, you know, figure things out on the fly. And that has served me so well. Just like, okay, we'll we'll figure it out on the way. 
you know, I'm portable, she's portable, and um, whatever I forget to bring, we could just get wherever we are. Do you know how well that has served me <laughs> over the years in, in traveling? That it's just uh, like, yeah, okay, how hard could this be? And yes, that has bitten me in the butt sometimes, business-wise. But it's also very freeing. It's very liberating to be able to think like, yeah, okay, well, I could do this. And, and I, I don't know how hard it's going to be. And therefore, it wasn't as hard as people seem to think it was, you know, for their experiences. That's that's fascinating because I was going to ask you how you think you have developed a sense of your own power and a sense of courage. And I think you just pretty much encapsulated it right there. That, you know, willingness to to jump in and try something and not go into it with thoughts that are already fearful, you know, apprehensions and doubts about it, but just the openness of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to try it and see what happens. And I mean, tying back to your, your advice to young women of not being afraid of making mistakes and, um, you know, the experience that you had as a youngster of, of being in a chaotic environment and learning how to navigate through it and how to keep yourself safe and tapping into that sense of indignation that your sister gave you. I mean, all of those things to me are things that I've heard you say about how you started to develop a sense of power and you know, how you started to experience being courageous in the world. How would you describe that in your life? How, how do you think you've built a sense of power and a sense of courage? This is going to sound kind of corny, but I, I think that I was just born with it. I think that I somehow just knew that I had this responsibility. I have this power inside me to be able to look at things and I can choose how I'm going to look at these things. I considered Jack Canfield one of my all-time life mentors because he has this formula called E plus R equals O, which is event plus response equals outcome. And when I learned this from him, I realized, oh, snap, this is how I've been living my life all along. Well, trying to live my life all along. This is, this is why I've been successful. This, he put a name on this principle, on this personal philosophy of mine that I didn't even know that I had. But when I read it, when I learned it, I was like, this resonates with me. This is the missing link. This is that common thread that has been woven in and out of my life from being a child that it's all up to me and using my hands as if you can see me, I'm pointing to my brain, I'm pointing to my head, like it's all up in here. Everything is up here. How I choose to look at things, how I choose to act, how I choose to perceive, how I choose to react, it's all up here. So whatever the event is, I can choose how I'm going to respond to it. And, you know, I may not, because I'm human, I may not choose 
to look at it in a positive light and he'd be like, oh, or so upset and in despair. But I can choose in the next moment or several moments or days or weeks later. <sighs> okay, moving on. And like your newsletter said, acceptance does not mean approval. So I'm not approving of whatever event. When I forgive someone, when I forgive a heinous event, I'm not approving of that event, but I'm accepting it, which is so completely different and so unbelievably empowering to be able to look at something and say, how do I learn from this? What did I learn from this? And that's been really pivotal for me to be able to realize I am so resourceful. I can really, uh, I just have this innate ability that I have to say that I was born with because I really don't remember learning it from anyone that I just knew from when I was little, like, oh, I look at things differently. You know, that's really interesting to hear because what you're saying, if I, if I understand, is your sense of your own power does not come from something external to you. It's something that is inside you that's always been there and that you've come to trust because you have been through some pretty horrible experiences and you have navigated through them. Mm -hmm. And you've discovered that the power lies not in trying to change those things we really don't have any control over, you know, other people and, and events and things that happen. The power is really in our choices. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty profound realization right there. Mm -hmm. I, I love that. I, I wonder, you know, if all people are born with that in them and just take longer to tap into it or... You know, if it gets obscured or somehow stunted sometimes? Yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a great question. I think that most people are bored with that, but that it's really, I don't know, drummed out of them. I know that it certainly um, wasn't, say, uh, encouraged when I was growing up. When I was very small, I, I had a very vivid imagination. And I know that that was actively trying to like get me out of that. I had imaginary friends. I was like, I had this very vivid, um, my mother called it a very vivid inner world. But it would make me quite the daydreamer and not very active and not very helping out around the house. And so that was, you know, tried to uh, beat that out of me. Figuratively, not literally. <laughs> and um, so I think that, um, yeah, this, when I say able to look at things differently, yeah, that I, I just knew, I knew that I was different from my other brothers and sisters. I knew that I could just see things or that I understood things differently. It was almost like, um, like I could have a macro view of something instead of a micro view. And um, it was just uh, a strange awareness for a small child, a little kid, to realize, wow, I'm kind of getting the big picture. 
And as I'm talking to you now, I'm wondering if that's why I had such a deep inner world, because the outer world was so chaotic that it was just safer and more comfortable to have this inner world with these, you know, wonderful imaginary friends. And, and I could sit and literally play in my closet by myself for hours at a time and, and not want to come out, not need to come out because I was just playing and putting on plays and musicals and doing all these things in my closet by myself. It's like kind of weird to admit, but <laughs> it's I a great, it's I a great picture. I didn't have a problem with it. And I guess my mother didn't mind sometimes because it just was one less child that was getting into trouble or making a mess. Right. But um, yeah, it's kind of strange. Well, another thing that I really appreciate about how you described that whole process of realizing that it the choices belong to you and that, you know, no matter what the event it's really how you choose to respond to it that that makes the difference. And one thing that I really, really appreciate about that is knowing that you're not just talking like interesting theory here. You're mm-hmm. talking because you have experienced some pretty horrible events in your life that you had to get through. Mm-hmm. Specifically, like with my daughter Nina, with her sexual abuse that she went through, I um. You know, and just to be clear, I'm not any kind of like monk or like really awesome person who always has this perfect response to all these distressing events. I mean, I physically collapsed when I found out the news. My my uh, knees buckled. It was like I had no bones in my body. I just completely fell down onto the ground. Uh, kind of dramatic. That's me. I, I was absolutely uh, devastated. And I felt guilty. So my response to that event was, you know, not like, okay, like, uh, you know, how do we process? I mean, I completely fell apart. And I was able to get up and rally and, and take appropriate actions. But I carried guilt from that whole scenario for, uh, I don't know, three or four years. And I didn't even realize that I was doing that. So just because I have this, you know, insight and this principle of forgiveness and acceptance of a situation and taking responsibility for my feelings, I also took on responsibility for the event, which is not helpful and, uh, you know, not, not even the right thing to do. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't her fault, but it certainly wasn't my fault that it happened. Is the fault of the perpetrator, <laughs> but I I took that guilt on, and that that took away um, many years of uh, joy for me because I I just felt so so horrible and, and so bad about myself, and I beat myself up mercilessly about that. Um, was was the guilt more than just like I should have known this was happening and I should have been able to prevent it? Was it was it tied? to the abuse that you suffered when you were a child? Yes and no. It was, you know, rational guilt. Like, you know, I'm her mother and I'm supposed to protect her. And, um, you know, I, I think every mother would feel this. But it was also irrational guilt. Like, there's 
no way that I could have known that this was happening. There was no, like, like how could I have blamed myself? I was just being, when our minds don't have enough information, you know, our brains want things to work well. Our brains want things to fall into place. So when we don't have all the information that things can fall into place, we create these scenarios, right? So that we we just figure, okay, well, I feel guilty about this. I feel terrible about this. I should have been able to prevent this. That doesn't make sense. How would I? I would have had to know about, there's just no way, but my brain wants to compartmentalize all that pain. It wants to blame not just the person, but their family. It just wants to push all this blame, blame, blame. And that includes me. It didn't make sense, but it made sense at the time. And so I had created this huge story that if only I had known, and if only I did this, and when I sat apart and I dissected it years later, like, there's no way. What was I thinking? I beat myself up for so long. Like, I tormented myself. I mm-hmm. just, like, I had this horrible self-talk. Like, I don't even want to say those words, like that poison coming out of my mouth, because now I speak so kindly and lovingly to myself. But I said such poisonous shit to myself about that incident that's not right it's so understandable though you know i i have two daughters uh, my two sons and i i like you i have a very vivid imagination and if i think about being in that situation that you were in of discovering that that my daughter had been abused and that i didn't know that it was going on i think i would have done what you did and the reason why is because you and I both, I think, have a very good sense of our own power, and we're used to being capable, and we're used to taking charge and making things happen in the world. And as parents, we both have been very engaged, very positive parents to our to our kids. And I think when when something like that happens, and we realize how powerless we actually can be mm-hmm. in certain situations. You know, that's when the self-recrimination comes through and, and the, the brain is trying to fill in that gap with like, well, you're usually powerful and, you know, here you are powerless. Well, let's just really get into that and think about how we should have been powerful. You know, we should have been all those things that we usually are out in the world in this situation, too, and, and just failing to really connect to the piece that was like, well, this, that was all out of our control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's similar to... You know, women who encounter uh, something on the street and, and get assaulted out of the blue, not with somebody that they knew was maybe not the best person to be with or who had given other signs of being violent or something, but somebody completely out of the blue, one of those random attacks, you know, and, and they, they, some of the women say the same thing, which is like, I should have known better. I should have known it was coming. I should have been able to do this. I'm so powerful in the rest of my life. Why couldn't I fight him off? Why couldn't I do this? Why couldn't I prevent it? And, you know, it goes back to what you said initially, which is, you know, shit happens sometimes. Yes. And you know what is also coming to me right now as we're discussing this? And I love that, you know, even now I'm 
47 and I'm still learning. I'm still just assimilating more and more over the years. Right now, it just occurred to me that the whole reason that I beat myself up over that, the whole reason that I guilt tripped myself unnecessarily is because I had this illusion that I was somehow in control, that I'm in control of my life and that I can control all these scenarios and I can control, I can control, I can control. And so here's a situation that I couldn't control, that I didn't control. But because I normally perceive myself as being in control, as being powerful, so I was not, this is my erroneous thinking, I was not control in this situation, therefore I am guilty. Because I lost control, I couldn't manipulate that. And realizing now from this higher perspective that I'm in, that control is really an illusion and that there are so very few things that we can control. And these external circumstances, whether it be violence or grief or whatever, loss of a job, a divorce, these things, we can't control them. But what can we control? We can control our emotions, we can control our reactions. And not always, you know, in perfect time. And, you know, sometimes it may take us, you know, longer for certain things than others. But that we have the ability to control those things. We can't control life, but we can control how we react to it. And uh, I guess that's just a great thing about life is that this happened to her. Oh, my God. Or I found out about it 12 years ago, and I'm still you know, 12 years later, able to process and go even deeper on it and understand that, wow, that was actually a control issue on my part. Yeah, I I agree. I think that you hit the nail on the head right there, that it, mm-hmm. it really is that illusion of control that causes all the pain. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Have you heard the uh, or read the quote uh, that's usually attributed to Charles Swindoll about attitude and the impact of attitude on life? Uh, no, what is that? Oh, wow. Well, this actually fits right in here. It's something that I was exposed to as part of my black belt training for first degree way back when, 20 years ago. <laughs> Ish. Ah. Yeah, a long time ago. And it's funny because I just saw one of the CrossFit boxes that I follow on Facebook posted it as a quote a couple days ago and just reminded me how much I love it. So I'll share that with you because I think you'll appreciate it. Yes. Here's how it goes. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than what other people think, say, or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We cannot change the past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do 
is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. I love that. That is, that's perfect. That's so wonderful. And that's, that's exactly how I live. Yeah. Yeah. It just fit right in with what, what you've been talking about this whole, this whole hour. <laughs> oh, great. I'm so glad I got to share that with you because that's one of my favorite things. And yeah, you'll, I'll have to, I guess, look at the show notes, but I love that or send that to me because, uh, yeah, that's savable. Yeah. Yeah. I can put it in the show notes. That would be, that would be a great thing to share with everybody. Okay. So I just want to move to a couple more questions and then we'll, we'll get on with wrapping it up. Okay. So what has been the biggest challenge in your life so far? What has been the biggest challenge in my life so far? I would say <laughs> probably having a healthy attitude towards my tendencies um, towards depression and anxiety. Or actually, let me encompass it in just my health issues because it's not just mental health, it's my physical health. Having a healthy perspective on all of my issues and remaining active in disidentifying with those diagnoses, meaning that every day, like meditation, it's a practice. Every day I have to work on my mental health and my physical health. Every day I have to be active in just fighting the good fight. But at this point, it's not a fight. It's just something that I do. But that uh, other people, I realize, may be, you know, so challenged with depression and anxiety or with their uh, physical illnesses, whatever they are, that it is a fight for them. But uh, it's not easy. I know that I come across as super bubbly and positive and, uh, you know, that I'm just... Uh, I don't know, high achieving and high functioning. And, you know, one of my clients asked me last week, have you always been this disciplined? And I just laughed and laughed and laughed like, hell no. I, uh, I am very disciplined, but it's been such a long work in progress. And part of that discipline is protecting my mental health and working on my physical health as much as I can. And it's, it could be hard to not identify, let's say, as a celiac or as a sexual abuse victim or as, you know, if someone has diabetes, they'll say, I'm a diabetic. And I don't stand for that for me personally. I would not identify and do not identify as a depressed person. I have had these diagnoses. I have them crop up in my life, but they're not part of my identity. They're not part of who I am. I have celiac disease. I have lupus. I go through lupus flares. I experience, you know, these um, episodes of extreme fatigue and pain. 
but that's not who I am. I might have bad days. I might be feeling blue. I might be feeling down. My energy is low. My mood is low. But that's not who I really am. But that requires active work. That requires all the meditation. All the, you know, I do a lot of walking, the mobility. I do a lot of positive affirmation. I look in a mirror. I do mirror work. I'm working on myself as much as I'm, you know, working with my clients. So that's what I mean about like, I, I'm active in that. And that's really my, my biggest, I don't even want to say challenge. It's just, it's just an opportunity because I just keep growing and growing and evolving. So it is a challenge in the, you know, the true sense of the word, but I choose to view that challenge as just an opportunity to get better and to be better. Oh, I love that. I'm going to start trying to channel my inner alien more frequently. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think you, you told me years ago, ah, we were talking about the kids. This was many years ago. Um, you were talking about, uh, the kids in school, um, they were in a Waldorf school, I believe, and talking about challenges and opportunities. And yeah, I'm pretty sure that, that you're the one that, that gave me that phrase, that turnaround to view a challenge as an opportunity. And I just, um, I have this weird thing with my brain where when someone says something like that, that really resonates or it's like it, um, it just, it's that perfect round peg that fits into this, you know, little round hole that I have. And it's like, ah, that's it. I'm going to keep that nugget there forever and just always refer back to it. So you actually gave me that. Oh, that's funny because I I remember that because it was such an aha thing for me hearing Mm -hmm. that talked about in the Waldorf school and where it came from was in a parent meeting when we were introducing ourselves as a new class, we were getting to know each other as parents and getting to know the kids. And um, one of the parents started talking about her child's strengths and weaknesses. And it was the class teacher who said, well, hang on a second. You know, I'd, I'd like to offer a different way of sharing about this. If you don't mind. And rather than strengths and weaknesses, can you identify your child's gifts and challenges. Oh, I like that. That's totally different. Yes. Yes. That's exactly it. Yeah. Oh, oh that's, that's amazing. I had no idea that had such an impact when I shared it. So it, it certainly had an impact on me. So yay. Yay. <laughs> I love when that stuff happens. That's great. Well, with all of those challenges, like how have you managed to be so physically active? Sheer willpower. <laughs> And I'm actually looking at a little picture of my dear mother right now. My mother was um, just really a powerful, dynamic force, not just in my life, but pretty much anyone, everyone that she met. And she was very ill. And, well, sometimes she would permit that to slow her down and stop her. For the most part, she was incredibly tenacious. And with all of her different autoimmune issues, this was one of them, where she would experience this extreme fatigue and this extreme weakness. 
she told me multiple times if she gave into it, if she just, you know, collapsed on the couch, which she would do occasionally just because you do have to rest and you do have to honor your body. She told me, I can't give into it because then I'll never get up off of the couch. I would see her just absolutely exhausted, laying down on the couch with her feet up. And she'd be resting and reading or doing crochet or crossword puzzle. And then she'd stop and say, okay, here goes. And she would get herself up and she would start doing her stuff. And just seeing, I didn't really understand when I was a kid, that, like what she was really going through and, and working through. But then as an adult, I, I realized, wow, she, she is like really quite a force. I mean, even into her early 80s, she was, you know, able to walk several miles a day, drag a 40-pound bag of cedar mulch up and down the driveway, you know, working in the garden. I mean, she was really out there. So seeing her be incredibly active with all of these diagnoses and then seeing my father, who was healthy as a horse, didn't have any of these health issues, and he was, you know, a highly accomplished marathoner and just super fit and, you know, started running when he was 49 years old. So, so having that kind of a role model of basically, you know, he was a tubby guy, you know, his eldest daughter is going to get married. And he said he didn't want to look like a penguin in his tuxedo. So he, uh, of course, you know, consummate uh, researcher, he researched the best way to lose weight and settled upon running. It was 1979. And he researched how to run, what shoes to get, and just immersed himself in the running culture, started running, and then decided he was going to start running marathons. And in a little over 25 years, he ran over 30 marathons, even more half marathons, all these road races. So growing up, watching my dad every weekend just get out and, you know, hit the bricks working really hard, doing all of this stuff in urban Newark, New Jersey. And then seeing my mom also kicking ass just in a different kind of way. Like, well, of course, that's, you know, again, my naivete. Like, of course, this is just what people do, right? They, you know, don't your parents get up on ladders and, you know, fix the gutter themselves? And don't your parents do this? And don't you like, that's just what people do, right? And so that was just ingrained in me from when I was a child. But this is, this is what we do. This is who we are. Yeah, that just, I mean, to me, that's like, oh my gosh, like Aileen grew up in this family where it was just like this can-do attitude. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. they both, both your parents had that can do attitude and your mother, holy cow, in the martial arts, we refer to what she had as indomitable spirit. Mm, you know, yes. to just never quit, never give up and just keep going. No wonder you're such a badass. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> you literally were born to be a badass. That would tickle my mother to hear that. That's awesome. <laughs> Oh, that's so cool. Oh, well, no wonder. No wonder you are such an extraordinary woman. 
I come from a long line of extraordinary women, so that means a lot to me. Thank you. Yes, you do. Well, let's see. Before we totally wrap it up, I want to ask you what you would want to have on your gravestone or what you would like to have said at your memorial. Not anytime soon, but eventually. That I was brave. And I, I know that I come across as, oh, I'm just super brave and I'm super meditative and I have my shit together and look at me. But um, I, I was afraid and I did it anyway. Yeah, I love that. Just even just hearing you say that, in my mind, I just thought, yes, because every day is an act of courage to get out of bed and to face all of those challenges and mm-hmm. you know, not know if you're going to get blindsided by one of those things that we have no control over. Mm-hmm. It takes courage to get out of bed every day and to stand mm-hmm. back up again when something crumples you to your knees. And you pretty much, again, answered my question on how do you build your sense of personal power and courage. And it's day by day by day. Yes. One of the things that I impart to my life coaching clients is that it is never too late to start or to restart or to pick something up. One of my favorite quotes is by um, Mary Wollstonecraft. And... She says, the beginning is always today. And not just today, first thing in the morning, but you can begin again right now. It's 2.11 Pacific time where we are. And right now, someone could choose to restart their diet or right now could decide that they're going to just get their butt in the car and go to the gym. Right now, you can just begin again. Someone has a dream of a podcast and it fell apart and then it's been on the shelf for nine months. So begin again. Be afraid and do it anyway. And the beginning is always, always happen right now. It doesn't have to happen on a Monday. It doesn't have to happen on January 1st. It doesn't have to happen on the first of the month doesn't have to happen when you first wake up. Yes, every day is a new beginning, but every, and this is where I'm going to get real deep real fast. <laughs> it's not just every day is a new beginning. Every hour, every minute, every moment is a new beginning. So whatever it is that we're chastising ourselves over, beating ourselves, to procrastinating, we failed, we gave up on this project, okay. So pick the barbell back up, pick the diet back up, open up your laptop and fire up that old website and get to it. And it doesn't have to be done today and it doesn't have to be done perfectly and it doesn't have to be even done half-assed. It could just do a crappy job at whatever, but just do it. And it's okay to be afraid. Just do it anyway. And that's, that's it. I'm done. Mic drop. Boom. Yeah. Oh, I'm just, I'm just sitting here thinking this episode is going to be one 
that I come back and listen to over and over and over again because there are so many little gems in this conversation. I'm going to want to hear them more than once. Oh, oh, you're too kind. Thank you. I'm serious. You know, I'm, I'm not a flatterer. So, uh, yeah, this is going to be one I'm going to want to listen to more than once. And I'd love to hear from other people if this is one that they come back to because I think it's going to be. So let's wrap it up by letting people know how they can get in touch with you and learn more about what you do. We didn't really talk too much about what you're currently up to. So if you want to share a little bit about that and then how people can connect with you, that would be great. Well, they can connect with me on my website, which is inward-ventures.com. I'm fairly active on Facebook on my Inward Ventures page and also through uh, 40s Weightlifting, where I'm the CEO of a weightlifting gym here in San Diego, where I'm currently residing. I also have an Instagram page, Inward Ventures. And uh, yeah, I'm on social media a fair amount. I just started blogging again. Uh, I blogged in the past with you. Yes, we um, did. Shout out to Paleo <laughs> Chicks back in the day. Yay! And um, anyway, so uh, yeah, Facebook is probably because I'm older Gen Xer, so I'm not a, I'm not on Snapchat, and I refuse to go on Twitter because uh, I really like my mental health. So I don't want to go down that road on Twitter, but, uh, yeah, find me on, uh, on Facebook on inward ventures and, uh, yeah, I'm very responsive and I, I put a lot of stuff up there and I've got Facebook groups and such, and I'll be doing webinars. So, uh, I, I'm doing my first webinar on August 2nd. I'm launching a newsletter August 1st. So everything you can find out on inward-ventures.com or my Inward Ventures Facebook page. Okay. And just in brief, what is Inward Ventures all about? Inward Ventures is uh, my life coaching practice. The premise is that to really be able to go anywhere externally to achieve whatever kind of uh, material success most people want and that different things for some people, relationships, for some people, it's career, for some people, it's travel, whatever external goals that you're seeking there's internal work that needs to be done that uh, requires uh, examination. And I guess I get a little woo-woo, you know, with uh, limiting beliefs and using some NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. I often guide people through meditation during our sessions. But uh, the, the life coaching that I offer is quite unique in that it's not just this, you know, woo-woo, releasing limiting beliefs and doing tapping and, and that kind of stuff and affirmations and looking in the mirror and telling yourself that you love yourself. But it's also very hands-on, practical steps, homework products that I would give to clients that will say, okay, I want you to write this out. I want you to do this. I'd like you to have this hard conversation. I want to gently suggest that you re-examine certain beliefs and you're going to write them out and you're going to say these things and we'll walk through different scenarios. So it's not just this like fuzzy, esoteric, like I believe in myself kind of stuff, but there are actual concrete steps towards taking responsibility in your life and 
cleaning up the messes and incompletes that you have and learning how to, when someone says no, you say next. So that when someone says no to you, it's not a rejection of who you are. They're just saying no to the question that you ask. Because so many times, you know, as entrepreneurs, when we ask people, when we finally get over ourselves and be like, hey, uh, excuse me, can you help me? Or, 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 and someone says no, you know, we're not devastated. We're like, oh, okay, next. Who's the next person in my network that I'm going to reach out to? Who's the net? Like, it's, it's just part of growing. So giving these very concrete exercises and what I call homework to the clients, I think is pretty unique because um, it seems most life coaches that I've worked with are either the very, you know, fuzzy, crunchy, woo-woo coaches, or they're all just hands-on, balls to the wall, you know, giving you, you know, exercises and things to do. And I, I like to think that my combination is just uh, very unique and um, I, I just have clients that I, I'm telling you, Cynthia, they just absolutely kick ass and they amaze me every week. I'm just astounded when people come back week after week and, and tell me what they achieved. It's like, oh, God, you're so awesome. But well, I'm, I'm not surprised because that just sounds like a really powerful blend and definitely in your area of genius. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, just listening to you describe that also, it's like, holy cow, like you're doing, you're doing for life coaching, you know, what, what I do for people in the self-protection world. You know, if you want to learn how to be safe in the world, it starts with that inward venture. It's looking inward and doing the self-examination and mindset work and practices in that area first. It's not Mm -hmm. all about the physical, which is the outer realm. So mm-hmm. it's like perfect parallel right there. That was really cool. Awesome. Well, I will include links to all of your social media things in the show notes. And also that quote that we shared a little while ago about attitude. And mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you. This has been such a great conversation, such a ride and so many gems. Thank you for, for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It was um, such an honor. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.